All right, we're back with another edition of Are You a Robot podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This is a podcast. If you don't know and you have never seen us before or heard us, what we're trying to do is tackle some of the biggest issues in machine learning and AI governance today. We do that by getting some of the best and the brightest minds in the field onto this show, and we talk with them about these ethical issues, about this AI governance. And hopefully what we aim to do is create a conversation so that we can have some kind of best practices that emerge from this. To continue that conversation, we've started a Slack channel so that we can build a community and hopefully have more engagement from everyone to make this a best practices place where we can come and discuss AI ethics and AI governance, regulation, what is okay, what is not okay. Just voice our opinion on what is happening with this technology as it starts to eat up more and more of our daily life. If you want to join that Slack community, check out the link below. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Ethics Grade. They're an ESG benchmarking firm that specializes in technology governance. So it lines up so perfectly with what we're doing here. We wouldn't be able to do this without them. So I got to give a big thanks and a shout out to them. Check them out in the link below if you're at all interested. All right. So let's talk now about Megan Ma, who we had on the show today. Wow, what a conversation. She is doing some really, really advanced stuff around legal language, legal frameworks, the way that programming languages and legal natural languages that lawyers speak are starting to come together or they're trying to come together and how that looks. What does that look like? The legal versus informal information and language that we're talking about. We look at this whole thing in a very detailed way and then we zoom out and say, what's the big picture here? What is this all about? And what are some ethical issues with this? How are we looking at this from an ethics perspective? Definitely check out Megan's newest paper on deconstructing legal text. I'll leave the link to that also below in the show notes. And without further ado, let's talk with Megan Ma. Are you a robot? Welcome everyone to another edition of our Are You a Robot podcast. Today, I'm joined by none other than Megan Ma. I want to give a quick introduction on Megan because she's a very special person to have here with us today. Megan has experience that spans from the world of politics to the legal sector all the way to academia. She's worked on policy at both the Ontario Ministry of Transportation and the Center of Health the Center for Health, Law, and Policy Innovation at Harvard Law School. In both roles, she was responsible for researching and analyzing how policy impacts and furthers health care and climate change. During her time at McDermott, Will, and Emory, she looked at how legal contracts were structured and used for arguments as well as agreements. 
currently a PhD candidate within law and a lecturer at the Paris Institute of Political Studies, Megan lectures on artificial intelligence in law, public health, law, and policy, legal semantics, and science, sciences et société. So, bienvenue, Megan. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Um, it was my pleasure. I think this is really cool. Um, I actually always want to be on a podcast, so this is something that's fun. This is your first one? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm sure it's not going to be the last, considering the amount of work that you are doing right now. I know there are many questions I want to get into, but just so that the listeners out there know what we plan to talk about today, I wanted to just give a bit of background on this idea of linguistics, technology, and law that we were going to touch on a little bit of each of these. And I will tell you about myself a little bit. I actually uh, got a degree in Spanish and Portuguese at university. So I am a bit of a linguistics geek or nerd, you could say. And cool. I find it really interesting, this whole idea of how language shapes our world, how it mm. shapes what we do, and also the different cultures and how they see the world. When you learn their languages, you get to see yeah. the world through their perspective. So I, I think it's awesome, the work that you are doing, but particularly for this talk, we wanted to go into language and law and also mm. how uh, new programming languages, new artificial intelligence is doing things to that and it has effects on it. So yeah. I'll let you give a bit of background on what we are going to dive into today. And if you want to just give us a bit of, of insight into how you decided to tackle this problem, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, sure. Um, so actually, um, as you'd mentioned in my introduction, I started in the field of health law, um, and that was my specialization before. Um, and that was all that I was really interested in. Um, but actually, during my master's, I wrote a thesis on sort of the impact of um, diagnostic technologies that use AI um, and their implications on sort of medical malpractice. And what I discovered is actually this crazy world of how technology is changing and shifting the way that law is trying to function and operate. So for my PhD, I decided that I would focus on this question of language and kind of the relationship between law and language. Um, there's been so much literature on it existing. Um, the biggest part about that field is that um, it really sort of took control of a lot of the literature in the 1970s till the 1980s. Actually, there's a really great piece by um, a scholar named Brenda Dannett, who's actually a linguist, um, but she wrote something called Language in Legal Processes. And she talked about how language was so important um, in the law and how it ordered social relationships. So kind of in that background, I was interested in how... Um, Natural language is something that might be really important for the law. Um, I read a lot on how the true meaning of legal text is sort of hidden in the language employed. So what you're talking about, kind of, if you change the language, then naturally sort of meaning is reconceptualized and 
consequently, kind of the different ideas that you're trying to demonstrate in a legal system, they're conveyed through kind of the different movements in language um, and the different kind of structures in language. So I just thought, why do we have this dependence anyway on natural language? I know that, for example, the French system, there's tons of these very specific words. English is probably one of the languages that it's the most vague. There's the most kind of likelihood of um, having multiple meanings. And that's kind of where all of that semantic ambiguity that we see in legalese. But I think with formal languages, it's a complete alternative framing. Um, There's sort of two sides to it. I saw that um, some people see that the need for natural language is its poetry behind it, that there's a lot of artistry behind using natural language, especially in legal drafting. Um, On the other hand, we have sort of people who see symbolic discourse and using a numerical mathematical twist to it it provides better, clear parameters and in interpretation. And especially in something like contracts, people want clarity or people want consistency in the law, coherence in the law. So they say that if we're able to sort of fix these ambiguities, um, it's better if we do so through math or do something that's more binary. Um, actually, Stephen Wolfram, one of his inspirations behind the Wolfram language was that he wanted to sort of distill out the poetry in natural language. So this is actually the opposite of what a lot of lawyers see. So that's kind of like a little bit about my interests. Um, Getting into sort of why I decide to take a turn from language, in, in addition to being interested in how AI had an impact in the field of law. Um, I think it was because when I was a kid, I would make up my own language and my parents were really strict about um, using swear words or kind of like being negative in the way I speak. So I would always kind of make up words to substitute how I feel. So even today, I have these weird tendencies to apply words in ways that I guess the average don't. So I think over time, it's just manifested into like what I'm doing now. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, I, I'm also in that same boat. I, especially seeing my daughter now, who is at the age of starting to form language. And my wife speaks to her in Basque and I speak to her in English and we're living in Germany. And so she gets a lot of German I noticed that she has her own language completely and she does her own thing. And my wife and I start speaking like her sometimes to each other. We'll say these words that she has come up with, but we all know what they mean. Uh, that's a bit of a tangent on what we want to talk about, though. The The interesting thing I, I find with this whole law and language, I did mm-hmm. some time working at a lawyer's office um, when I was in university. And I was talking to a lawyer one time and I remember him specifically telling me, I said, so, you know, what do you learn in law school? What is, what is it in law school? And he said, well, the first two years are them just teaching you how to speak and write like a lawyer. And that was his, of course, it's very oversimplified. It's not like that uh, only, but that is a lot of what lawyers do. They have to have this mm-hmm. own, their own technical jargon for mm-hmm. the way that they write. And when you look at what they put or uh, submit to the courts, it is 
very much in a lawyer speak, we could mm-hmm. say. And knowing this because my dad is also a lawyer, he instilled that in me from a very young age. And it's very much like these big words that we're using that are describing things and very complicated sentences. And yeah. so I think it's really fascinating what you're doing in that mm-hmm. field to look at it. What I wanted to touch on first is you mentioned technology is changing how mm-hmm. this is happening. Can you go mm-hmm. into that a little bit more and changing the, the language within law and how it's changing it? Yeah, certainly. So uh, you already spoke about it. Um, I guess actually one of the first things is that in one of my classes, I had a student who, um, when he took my course in legal semantics, said to me, um, well, I'm just here to learn legalese. And my response was, how is it different from English? Um, well, what what we kind of realize is that, yes, like law is a lot of technical jargon. And actually, lawyers love hiding behind that um, to avoid explanation in many ways. Um, there was a huge movement. And the first step that um, a lot of kind of people demanded in the legal field is, can we... Um, open up accessibility, right? And it's amazing to kind of understand that the technical jargon in a way and this sort of expert language, you're kind of blocking access to a field that people really actually rely on to um, work through disputes. So there's this huge movement, I think, in the UK that started called the Plain English Movement, where they're trying to simplify legal contracts or legal documents from all this jargon to just very simple sentences. And I think that eventually took hold of how technology was going to play a role in it, um, at least. But this isn't anything new, I think. Um, There's stuff that's emerged from the 1960s. Um, One scholar, he was both a computer scientist um, by kind of initial technical trade and then officially he just decided to also learn like law and stuff and he became kind of a professor both in computer science and law and what he said was that um i think it's better to kind of change the legal drafting and change the way that you should be drafting language to avoid syntactic uncertainty. So he says that lawyers are playful in the fact that we intentionally infuse ambiguity um, in our writing. And it's so that contracts and law can't be a closed system. And we don't want to guarantee anything. So what happened is that semantic ambiguity, he doesn't dispute. But there's something called syntactic ambiguity that he's trying to target. And I think this is something that a lot of programming languages are talking about. But there's sort of different implications when you integrate technology with it. So with Lehman Allen, so this is this professor of computer science and law, he just wanted to reframe how you would just draft a contract. And he said that there's a lot of words, like, for example, unless. He said that there's a way to make that phrase unnecessarily complex by adding words like unless. And he said, well, if everything was just written as conditionals, if then statements, then it would be much clearer. And so that obviously kind of inspires or, you know, gets a lot of computer scientists like really interested because 
this Boolean logic and kind of using if-then conditionals and things like that, that's very close to procedural programming and kind of how you can work and play with that. So I think that's one of the big ways that technology is seeing a place and kind of taking on that direction and changing how the drafting of contracts looks like. I think there's sort of um, unintentional consequences of um, mixing with semantic ambiguity is what I dress. So um, in the process of sort of reframing phrases to make them more syntactically clear, sometimes we rid of semantic ambiguity that might have been intentionally there to make sure that, and sometimes this is placed for the reason that two parties, they wanted to ensure trust with each other and what's known as a contract originated with, you know, a handshake. And so when you kind of make things excessively clear, um, it gives the impression that you don't trust the other party almost because you want to make sure everything would be executed, that there's no loophole. Um, And that sort of gives the other party or the other contractual party a kind of nervousness. So I think that sort of one thing. I think I spilled a lot of things here, but that's sort of my initial reactions to kind of the direction that technology has with. Yeah, one thing I found fascinating in one of your papers, um, I think it was the the laws of new language that you spoke of oh. the declarative law as like, mm-hmm. and you made this uh, parallel with the declarative programming. And for those that don't know declarative programming, it's you just say, I want a cake, right? And then the, mm-hmm. the machine will come and it will it will give you a cake. And mm-hmm. then there's the, the other kind of programming where you say, okay, to make a cake, you do this, you do this, you mm-hmm. do this and that, and then put it in the oven, bake it for mm-hmm. 20 minutes and you have a cake. And so I found this really interesting, this idea of declarative law. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So I guess the difference of what you're talking about, the instructions and this declarative programming sort of is um, what I see the stark differences of Python and Prolog. Um, And declarative kind of law, um, one of the things that it sort of, has ancestry in is sort of almost um, syllogistic reasoning in law. So using this deductive reasoning where you have general principles and then these different facts, whatever happened in the case, they sort of insert themselves with the principle. They're sort of molded to adapt to the principle as opposed to common law institutions that just apply past case law. Um, And I think the difficulty with something that's declarative law is that um, it sort of suggests that the legal systems could be closed. And the problem is, is that um, you can't close a legal system because the whole purpose of law is so that it continues to grow and to continues to morph based on societal changes and societal circumstances. So a lot of these systems that you already have to kind of put in the conditions, put in the sorts of um, requirements it sort of already suggests that this is the way that we want the legal system and kind of everything sort of centers around this box. Um, And then later on, we can just ask um, 
the law, what this is about, and that out pops an answer. Um, and But that's sort of um, very early stages of expert systems. I think as I kind of went further into my research, I realized that there's a lot right now where people want to apply the sort of principle of kind of putting in fundamental principles of the law and then seeing how different elements of metadata and kind of different conditions of the world will naturally help, um, I guess, change the system. So it's a combination, it's a hybrid system of both expert and machine learning. Um, and I think that's actually what's um, really fascinating because it's mirroring the symbiotic relationship in law between deductive and inductive reasoning. So we have both overarching principles. But we also do follow past case law and we do try to generate patterns and generate consistency in both ways. So I think that's what's really interesting. In that article, I really only saw the kind of fears of how technology might close off the legal system. And that's why I say that there's kind of this idea of declarative law and kind of um, a fear that um, we will own, we'll freeze law in our current state and make it unable to grow moving forward. Well, when you speak about this, uh, as you went further into your research, you saw there's a different way. Can you give us some examples of that? Um, yeah, of course. So right now, um, I'm actually working on a project uh, in using graph theory to, um, I guess, translate legal concepts. And what it is, is that we both outline, sort of draw and extract legal concepts from judicial decisions, but we also sort of map them and how precedent has connected concepts together. So what we see as, um, I guess, literal definitions or, um, I guess, um, everyday understanding of words and how that differs from legal definitions. So we have all these judgments that we broke down the sentences and we put them into fundamental sort of bare bone structure. We just literally laid them out as this is the subject, this is the verb, and this is the object. And when we were able to map these sentences, we actually saw how judges attempt to string together um, past case law and kind of try to clarify legal definitions. And so that is a... and. We kind of then also applied machine learning. Um, and this hybrid technique basically is able to synthesize almost the deductive and inductive um, reasoning that's involved in law. So I think that's maybe an example. I think right now many scholars talk about using both rules-based and data-driven technology, but there's never been the combination. But I think where they're headed is this extent. And I think um, the rules is code movement. So I've spoken to a couple of people who are really interested in drafting legislation from, from inception um, in code. And so they're kind of saying we're going to parallel draft like one in natural language and the other in code. Um, and I think that process and trying to sync up almost 
abstraction and how we represent knowledge, both in natural language and in code, that's also doing that process of a hybrid technique where we're trying to pick out what are the areas of certainty in law and what are the areas of uncertainty and why we depend on one over the other. Um, so I think I'm not sure if I completely answered your question, yeah, but yeah, right now a lot of work is being done more on the network and how law connects in co different concepts as opposed to either we're going to just abstract patterns or abstract sort of rules from a whole bunch of data or where we're going to just try to type in rules and set out all the rules of the law and then see what the outcomes would be. Yeah, yeah, it makes yeah. sense. So then would the main benefits of this idea of creating a law in a programming language and in our natural language, it would be for to, to create less um, ambiguity in a way? Or how would that benefit yeah. us? Mm -hmm. like, so like to have these two in parallel, what would be major benefits? Of that. Mm -hmm. So I think their big sort of um, mission of this movement is getting rid of these syntactic ambiguities that I was mentioning. And um, I think a part of it is that they're trying to use natural language to set out broad principles almost, and then use programming language almost to set out implementation. And I think that's an interesting way of perceiving um, how formal languages might play a role. Um, I think a lot of the times, especially, say, um, working through insurance claims as a very sort of low-level example, kind of determining whether or not you meet certain requirements, it'd be nice if you just had a very simple, reductive, yes-no kind of binary. And I think with code and using formal languages, this is very achievable. Um, whereas kind of what your purpose and intention behind a certain regulation or a certain legislation, I think there's still merit in keeping the artful element of it, the poetry of the law, for example. So I think what they're trying to do is this combinatory method of maintaining the law kind of necessarily open, but also with concepts that require clarity to make sure, say, that someone could achieve or get the insurance that they deserve or um, get the claim back, that there's clarity in that and that you're not working through a million documents or trying to weave through what exactly these, these exact words mean. Well, along those lines, I, I know that you wanted to touch a, a bit more on natural language and what your thoughts and feelings are of natural language and how we interact with it. And, and can you just dive into that a bit? Yeah. Um, I am a big believer that natural language should always play a role in um, the law and the drafting of the law. Um, I don't see that uh, formal language as a legal language. Um, I don't see it as anything bad, actually. I see it as something that's great as well. Um, I just think with natural language, we're able to 
better mold, um, I guess, the changing circumstances of society um, with natural language um, in comparison with programming language. I think programming languages have a great number of benefits, especially in precision. Um, and I think that is a very big key in law. Um, but one of the one of the things that I always see with natural language is that um, there's something sort of kind of exciting almost to have natural language be a huge part of um, how the law functions. Um, I think that I've spoken to sort of these startups that have built these languages. And one of the things that they mention is um, this almost inertia or fear of change in the legal field. Um, and I don't know if it's necessarily that. I think part of it is we've been accustomed to having natural language as the primary medium to communicate the law. Um, and I think what is problematic is being able to actually extract information that we write. So I think that there's merit in having a hybrid approach of having both text and data um, integrated together that the parts that we need um, from data, the clear sort of clear cut parts of it, we can achieve. Whereas there's, we're not ridding any of um, this beautiful history that we have built with natural language. So that's sort of one of the reasons why I'm fascinated by it. For me, um, I think it takes a lot from the character of the law if we get rid of natural language um, in legal reasoning or legal drafting. Um, so I, I think that's largely it. Um, I, I would tend to agree that I appreciate the poetry of natural language and being able to express things in multiple meanings. I understand that it's probably annoying for people to kind of not have that exact meaning, but um, many scholars see sort of areas that we can just corner off in the law as being always certain and always uncertain. So let's leave the uncertainty to natural language that can adapt to these circumstances. And when we find those areas of certainty, let's leave that to programming or formal, clear, precise kind of code. Um, so I think there's merit to both. Um, my fear is that when we're so used to drafting so precisely that programming languages will absorb natural language and we lose the reason why we had started with this medium. So that's the, that's kind of my reason why I like natural language. Um, but I, I guess, I don't know, I don't see anything wrong with programming language. I think actually it's a great addition and could be a great addition to legal drafting. But so yes. Let's go into these these languages that you spoke of. And mm -hmm. there's different startups that are trying to create languages, computer programming languages specifically for the law, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. And yeah. you've you've spoken to a few of them. And I'm just wondering what first of all, I had no idea that existed before I read your paper. And mm -hmm. I thought that's fascinating because they're trying to attack this very specific problem with mm -hmm. 
languages. And it's not just one, right? It's there's a few different yeah. uh, startups, and and I, I don't know if most of them are open source or or what, but there's mm-hmm. a few languages out there that are trying to attack this problem. And so, can you talk a bit about that and how you see that playing out in the next like five to ten years, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I could speak to a couple of the languages that I find are most fascinating. Um, there's three. Uh, the first one is Ergo, and Ergo is part of this suite of resources that Accord Project has come up with. And actually, we can't look at Ergo independently of its sort of suite of resources. And I actually made the mistake in my paper of isolating Ergo. And the reason I say this is because um, one of the co-founders had reached out to me and said, hey, like you're getting this wrong. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. But essentially what I... the record straight. Yeah. So here I can say safely that I had a great conversation and I understand the language a lot better. But um, so Ergo can't be divorced from what he calls Cicero, which is this overarching sort of... um, I guess the architecture and ergo is only the logic component. Um, And why I talk about it is because the other components actually are directives for the logic component almost. So he has the first part, which he calls the text layer almost. Um, And then there's the sort of model layer. And then finally the data logic layer is ergo. And what I had only kind of saw when I had originally written the paper is this ergo and how you can translate from prose and the actual natural language clause to this ergo. And what ergo was doing was actually only doing the machine executable component. Um, Whereas in kind of contracts, what they've divided with the layers with text model and data is that they've sort of moved from human readable to machine readable and then machine executable, whereas it's got to be kind of understood altogether. Um, So I guess with Ergo, what it is, is that it's quite, it really only looks at the demands and obligations that come from the particular clause. So In Ergo, I looked at a clause on sort of what is the penalty involved if I'm delivering sort of fragile goods and um, I'm putting this recording device to make sure that every little bump on the road I get a track of. So I know kind of just how beaten up things might be if you get to when you arrive at the destination. And sort of they set a parameter that if the acceleration is above 0.5 or below it, then kind of if it's within the range, it's fine. If it's out of the range, then you owe me money because you kind of messed up my good. Um, And it's a kind of straightforward procurement contract. Um, But on Ergo, it literally only wrote as delivery update. Um, And what I, and kind of it reframes the whole provision, right? It suggests that this recording device is not really necessary. Um, that really I only need a delivery notification. But what the Ergo component is actually only extracting almost what you want to be automated and what you want to kind of notify the 
parties. It has nothing to do with sort of these minor details of a clause that might be important. So the fact that I had to ban it a recording device, to me, that's sort of fundamental to the contract and why I agreed to have you deliver it. But obviously, it's not communicated in the programming language. And so I had originally said, well, you know, you're sort of reframing everything to a functional approach in contracts, when actually there's a lot going on with contracts. There's a lot called the meeting of the minds, right? That when you and I go into a contract, it's it's on the basis of trust. It's that you respect kind of my ideas put forward and I agreed on your conditions as well. So that's sort of my fear initially with Ergo. But actually what he meant is that you have to look at all components. And when people are looking at a contract, what it is is that I'm just automating or I'm signaling to the machine and the executable part of it, um, these tiny aspects. Whereas the rest of the law, that's still kept in the natural language, the human readable component. Um, so I think that that's, that's actually great. That's exactly what I've been talking about. The perfect sort of symbiosis between natural language and machine readable language. Um, but on the other hand, kind of other languages, um, I've also kind of gotten the chance to speak to Lexon and the Lexon um, and the founder, Henning Dietrich, as well as Flocks and the founder, Jason Morris. And it was really great. They all they all reached out to me um, as a sort of response to my paper. So it, it's nice that Everybody I got... Everybody wants to set the record straight. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, and I was like, yeah, sure. Like, challenge me on it because I'm just coming from a legal background. And so for all these languages, um, I think with Lexon, it's most sort of interesting to me because there are almost filtering certain parts of the law out. And why I say that is because um, their idea is that we don't want you to think that this is a programming language at all. The basis of this is a human readable programming language. And so at first, my reaction was like, this is awesome. Like, I don't even have to program and I can understand this. Um, it, however, creates sort of an extra layer of confusion. And the reason I say this is because they do what is like a controlled natural language, meaning that they're sort of shrinking the vocabulary that actually has um, a performative element to it. And what I mean is that there's only certain words that could execute contracts or could be used. Um, and it's also, in, they take out articles. And sometimes articles are important in contracts. So for example, if I entered in an agreement to um, purchase your guitar, but I wrote in the agreement, I just want to purchase a guitar from you, then you can pick literally anyone and you can give me like one in a terrible condition. I have a few on the wall here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if I wrote in the contract, I want that guitar or I want this the, there's such a significance with using an article, right? And so I think my problem with Lexon was this kind of attempt to shrink the already sort of vague vocabulary that we have. And he said that certain words like, so he was talking about simple transaction contracts and there's no sort of names. He just calls them payer and payee, but they could also be reversed. So it's like payer pays payee. And so that is a contract. And so it becomes incredibly confusing the more complex and 
a contract becomes. And of course, sort of his idea is that it would only be limited to smart contracts. So it's already integrated into the language, what payer represents and what payee represents. But if I was just, you know, part of the legal staff that's reading a contract, I just see a whole bunch of vague names with no articles. And so for me, it's sort of almost a double-edged sword where you try to simplify it, but in removing a lot of these elements, you take away from the richness of what a contract requires. And I think the third language, yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, oh, okay. I was just yeah. thinking that. That's incredible. <laughs> and the third language is blocks. And blocks is really interesting to me. And the reason is because they've taken a completely different approach. They're looking into knowledge representation, abstraction in a different way. And they're almost doing a creative spin to it. They imagine things like Legos. And it's inspired by Scratch which is a kind of no-code programming, right? I'm sure you're aware of it for kids. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. And so he's taken this concept of from scratch, from Blockly and from Google, and sort of put it together for law. And he says that, you know, it ensures that even those who have no kind of technical background can piece together a contract or whatnot, like using my language. Um, and he has sort of, components that he has to define clearly from the start. So this is very similar to the declarative programming and the declarative law that we were looking into. Um, My initial issue with that language is they try to um, reframe legality as validity. And in law, um, I guess, at least in contract law, there's a difference between the two. A contract could be legal Um, or it could be sort of valid. It's a well-written article, I mean, well-written contract, but it could be legally unenforceable, meaning that it's not necessarily a legal contract. So kind of the reframing of certain concepts from legal to valid, something like that, because it's based on the constraints of that language itself. That's sort of my hesitation with the blocks language. And I did have a conversation with Jason, who's, you know, I I see him as a friend now. Um, and he obviously told me that I had misread that. Um, and I hadn't properly kind of looked at the part where he defined more clearly the conditions. But I think it's impossible to properly define what legality is um, without sort of understanding that the law has an implicit force, meaning that we rely on the law because of what it represents for society and what it represents having lawmakers sort of substantiate that. And I think with programming languages, when you sort of conflate concepts like legality with validity, you take away from Um, this implicit force that I think about. So that's sort of still my hesitation around it. I think it's really helpful as a language for, he did a demonstration for um, kind of working through symptoms of COVID. And he was saying, you know, like, how do I follow the legislation that's articulated on um, what I'm demanded or expected to do when I come back from a trip? 
um, and the quarantine kind of requirements. So it does a really great job of that because there are very clear conditions that are set out. I think with contracts, again, there's a lot that weighs on incompleteness of contracts and intentional semantic ambiguity that blocks sort of isn't as great with at least kind of in my thought in it. And Jason Morris is part of this amazing rules as code movement. So his kind of idea is more leaning towards clarifying legislation anyway. Um, I kind of applied it to contracts, but um, I think in the same way, what I realized with blocks and realized with many of these languages is that they work better for some cases than not, which says a lot about not only the field of law, but what technology should be focused on. It's like the design questions. So, um, yeah, that's in, so the three kind of languages that really struck with me. Um, well, it's, it's funny. I just think about a friend told me the fastest way to get an answer on the Internet is to give the wrong answer. And oh. it feels like you mm-hmm. talking about these different programming languages t- saying, oh, well, I didn't like it because of this. You became friends with the, yeah. the actual creators of it because yeah. they said, hey, we got to clarify this. We got to make sure that you understand completely what's going on because mm-hmm. of that. So I just want to zoom out a little bit and mm-hmm. look at this. Let's imagine for a moment that there was a language that in your opinion got it all right and it was mm-hmm. able to do what it needed to do uh, for you to feel like yes this is the way forward what would that enable in society and in the legal system mm-hmm. how would that what's like the big picture here as why mm-hmm. people are driving this train forward Yeah, so uh, that's a really great question. Uh, I think for me, um, one of the biggest benefits, and this is stated by many of the many of the startups that work on this field, is they want to improve the efficiency and leave the kind of grunt word to the machines. And I really agree. And I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of work in contract analytics right now that's trying to help take static platforms like Microsoft, Adobe, and pull out the right information. For example, notifying when contracts are kind of almost up or like certain kinds of actual demands from the contract that you need to be reminded of. Um, And I think those things, when you have these programming languages, that becomes automatic. And I guess that leaves sort of higher level analysis to humans. And I think that's also something I agree with. Um, I think there's sort of occasionally this fear that we got the balance wrong, that eventually there's going to be a systemic replacement of all these different processes we've had for so long in the, in the field of law. Um, and this is going to be done by machines. I think that's not true. I think if we're able to deconstruct the existing processes and find out what exactly are the inefficiencies right now and we're better with kind of identifying these areas of certainty that we've flushed out for so long already why do we need to rely on sort of these ancestral tools and then kind of apply a mix of the programming and the natural language then we create sort of better contracts i think i think we keep the sort of beautiful 
elements of contract law, for example, that camaraderie that's associated with contractual parties that not only you trust each other, but the other element of kind of clarity that in cases where you don't necessarily trust each other, that you make sure you kind of cover your back there. So I think um, my vision is, of course, this hybrid sort of language. And there's a lot of kind of tools right now that are working in this hybrid field. One of them is open law that I speak about in my paper. I think that they're trying to do XML in law. So they're kind of using a markup language and picking out sort of variables almost that can be reused. And this idea of um, modularity in contracts that you can sort of pull out the pieces that you can just reinsert in every contract to kind of ensure a continuity of clarity or a base level of clarity. And then you can kind of make it bespoke and make it your own. Um, there's one sort of startup that I had a great conversation with called LawGood that is actually focused on the intentions of the contract. So their contracts use very user-friendly interfaces where it's just a little toggle that moves around and it'll work with your sort of client position that you're going for. So if you like move it to the left, maybe it's more beneficial to contract party A. If you move it to the right, it's more beneficial to the other party. And in the middle is kind of neutral. And I think there's a lot of these different approaches that are just trying to help simplify all that technical jargon we talked about in the beginning. Um, the whole basis of contracts is that it should be clear um, and there should be sort of a baseline of friendliness, but we don't want to take away from the poetry. So of course, again, kind of my vision is this hybrid language that's able to um, identify all the areas that can be reusable um, and kind of reproducible, all the areas that provide us that clarity, while also maintaining the artistry of it and ensuring that con contractual parties that enter into these contracts, they are making it their own and the contracts still hold the integrity that they expect from a natural language contract. So talking about giving us more clarity on these contracts, this is from the eyes of someone who's not necessarily a lawyer or hasn't been mm -hmm. trained, right, in these legalese. And do you foresee it being something like when we are then signing those 10 million page terms uh -huh. and conditions for iTunes or for Facebook mm -hmm. when they change that, then we will actually understand it and not just press click, yes, whatever, I don't care? Mm -hmm. So uh, it's great that you mentioned that because um, I... I look actually at those online form contracts as sort of great ancestors um, and where we can learn from past mistakes. And those contracts, what they do is they sort of reformulate how we see contracts. What they do is they're actually more of obligations. We feel compelled to them um, as opposed to this ongoing negotiation as to what a contract really should be. Um, and why like hybrid languages is that there's an experiment that was done with the online forum contracts where what happens if that consumer was able to just have a say in changing one of the clauses in those billions of pages of those online forums? What would that do to that person? 
And what they realize is that they're more likely to actually comply with an online forum contract and actually go through it and absorb the material if they knew they had control over the terms, as opposed to just clicking accept or decline. So what that means is we don't, uh, as a you know, as a person that enters into a contract that doesn't have a legal background, there's a sort of trust and reliance naturally on the lawyer that they kind of know best. So I see using programming languages almost as that trust that there's parts of contracts that's been sort of reasoned out. We beat it to death in terms of how clear it can be. So let's just keep reusing those clauses. And then there's clauses that we want that space for negotiation. And that's where natural language will come in perfectly, where you can articulate your opinions, articulate what your demands are and how to make them your own. And that sort of will help with, um, I guess, ensuring that we don't run to the same mistakes of these online kind of terms and conditions that um, we ensure that contracts going forward will uphold kind of um, not only for myself, like clarity in making sure that I understand all of the clauses that I agree to, but that I had a say in uh, their creation. Yeah, that brings up such a good point. I look at it like you were talking about with this startup that, sorry, I can't remember the name that has the sliding scale. Oh, um, yay. Oh, I forgot to mention they're called Law Good. Law Good. That's it. And I was wondering, you know, it, even if that was a piece of those contracts mm-hmm. where I could have a sliding scale of saying how much uh, yes or no I want in mm-hmm. this clause or that clause, it yeah. makes complete sense what you're saying. Yeah, I'm probably going to look at it a bit more close or I'm going to look at it closer because it's it's something that I can choose yeah. and it's not something that I just have to agree and move on mm-hmm. with my life or disagree and not use the product, uh, which mm-hmm. is like you, you so eloquently put just now. It's like right now it's an obligation if we want to mm-hmm. use the product, but it should it's a much different scenario when it's a sliding scale of mm-hmm. how much we want one or the other. So yeah. that's, those are great points. Now yeah. I, I think about that though, as the sliding scale and as this, I just wonder if it would ever be implemented because of, well, what is going to keep someone and especially like like you mentioned, even if we go back not only on these terms and conditions, but if you go back to an actual contract between two parties, mm-hmm. what's going to keep the party A just from saying best terms and whatever for me, slide it all over here for me, and then you get the leftovers in a way. Yeah. And so uh, especially if I think about me and if Facebook had this, for example, I would turn everything mm-hmm. off if I knew I could and just not yeah. not do anything. But then my my rationale here is that, well, Facebook's not going to want to do that, right? Because mm-hmm. now they're not going mm-hmm. to be yeah. able to have my data or track my, my whatever mm-hmm. it is. They're not going to make money off of me as easily. Mm-hmm. So... That's that's one thing that I look at and I, I question when I'm trying to play this through in my head. How would that look and how would that be? 
I don't uh, know if you have any thoughts on that or if that yeah, was just a little um, bit of a ramble on my part. Well, I've been rambling this whole time, <laughs> but um, I think you point interestingly to who's the user um, for these contracting tools. Um, and I think for me, I see them as tools to help the little guy or to sort of see to the average person. Um, I think for far too long, lawyers have had a monopoly on legal drafting. And I think it's time that um, everybody has a better role and better knowledge, better understanding of how contracts are to be formed um, and what are the sorts of safeguards um, that are needed to make a solid contract. the problem is, is that all technology is susceptible to big corporations that have kind of perhaps malicious intentions behind their use. And I think when it comes to something like Facebook, um, they have their own team of lawyers that I'm sure reviews, re-reviews, and has perfected how to kind of ensure that the users, their clientele, um, do not know what the terms and conditions are or that, you know, um, that they're going to definitely make money off it. And I think actually for them, they might have an argument to not use those tools and to not or kind of ensure that the everyday person does not have access to these tools to kind of counter them. I think for them, they do not want this type of tool because it almost leaves them out in the open and they get exposed as to what their intentions are. So I guess there's no real easy answer to your question. Um, I think for me, um, there's there's always going to be good and bad with technology. I think at least... Um, Having these tools gives the promise that more people could understand and not be blocked from expert language, which is something that, again, circling back with all the jargon, it's been for years how lawyers have kept their sort of position and state in society and people relying on their services. So I think it's really hard. Yeah. That's and it's so funny. That's what we were talking about at the beginning, right? You have to go to yeah. school to learn all of this jargon, and and yeah. then correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a while on my since I was a clerk at uh, in a law firm, but the one one of these startups you said was Ergo. Is Ergo mm-hmm. a legal term that they'll use in contracts? Well, it was really funny when I saw looked into it. It was like. It's ergo is like therefore almost, but uh-huh. it's just this weird like fancy way of saying that. But every time I typed it when I was drafting on it, they kept trying to make it a lowercase because it's like a natural therefore. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's funny that they chose that. I mean, the other parts of their suite don't have this kind of subtlety or dual meaning to it. Uh-huh. Um, but there's so yeah. many words that are kind of used in the legal world that don't quite make sense out of context. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So so the the last things before we wrap up, I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you in in your opinion, like 
how do you feel this, what are some things that the tech community at large needs to consider when looking at policy and when looking at how to move forward? Yeah, uh, wow, that's a weighted question to kind of conclude. But um, I think possibly this might be trite. Um, A lot of people have mentioned that there's sort of an exclusive community that is currently involved in developing the policy and that there aren't enough voices or opinions that um, are asked. Um, And I think lots of literature, so from the science and technology field, looks into things like data feminism and like feminist perspectives and things like that, but also um, deciding who are the experts that can contribute sort of what's valuable to the policy or kind of asking general survey what would you know, the larger or broader community expect from technology. And there's a weird balance where um, we want these expert opinions because a lot of these people have dedicated their lives and trying to kind of figure out this question of technology. But at the same time, this technology is for the benefit of everyone. And the use of technology is so pervasive that we need the thoughts and opinions of the broader community. So it's finding sort of, I guess, the balance between how many voices to include actually, and do we have limits on who we consider are the experts? And I think a lot of people decide that certain people should be experts or not. I think that is primarily the dialogue right now, who should be an expert. But I think for the other part is that we need a lot more, I guess, community involvement and at least the ability for us to deconstruct all this technical jargon on what technology is, what the harms, what the benefits are. We need to make that into plain English. So going kind of full circle into natural language, technical jargon, we need kind of, I guess, a s- equal starting point, I guess, for everyone to know what technology could offer. Um, and then from there, kind of decide who to include as voices. Um, it's, I think it's very almost shallow to say we can include everyone. Um, but I think there is a lot of merit into how many um, are involved with the process. And there's got to be a great balance between everyone. Fascinating stuff. So I have one last question for you. And yeah. it is... Megan, are you a robot? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Sometimes I wish I was, uh, but no, I don't think so. Oh, perfect. I Thank you so much for being here and talking to us. This has yeah. been fascinating. I really have learned a ton, so much that I did not know about in this field and you have opened my mind and my to these possibilities and also just you keep me up to date on what is going on in this little subset of the world that I potentially would not have even realized is happening as as technology moves forward I think that's one thing that there's so many different niches that are doing things with technology and especially in machine learning and AI that it's moving forward and it's doing, there are advancements and there are startups that are trying to conquer these problems in this little niche. 
And mm -hmm. I really appreciate you coming on here and telling us, hey, well, here's one little niche and this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it. So yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. No, thanks very much for having me. Um, again, I said this is super fun. And um, yeah, I'm sorry I rambled on for so many of these topics. Um, I really but appreciate yeah, this, it. This was really, really fun. And you asked really exciting and interesting questions. Actually, a number of them stumped me. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, That's great. Well, I want to thank you again. This has been great. And we will see everyone later. If you would like to join our Slack community, where we talk about everything and anything that has to do with data ethics and AI, please check out the link below. It will be there and you can come voice your opinion on any of these topics that we've been talking about in the podcast recently. All right. Talk to you all later. Yeah. Bye. Thanks.